Let me talk you through the two most emotional, stressful months of my sales career. It's no big deal to call a CTO and tell I want to talk. You cannot stand on the sideline and basically wait until the dice rolls itself. It's never gonna happen. I don't know if this is gonna be on the record or off the record. It's almost like playing with cards, this job. Like, it's like you, you get given a, a hand of cards and like you have to do the best with what, what you have. It's like someone might have been watching, watching down on me. Me and Jack going into this, when, when he originally told me exactly the same, like, oh, you know, Jack, I've got this idea, you know, what about this? I just, my first thought was, my God, if no, I don't even care if anyone, like, listens to this, you know, if I take one key takeaway from every recording, I'll be such a better app. This is no big deal, the sales podcast. We are very excited to welcome our next guest onto the No Big Deal podcast, Mick Gossett. And a bit of background to Mick, he has been a sales rep for many years now and has been a multi-wide top performer at every company he's been at. He started at a French company named Tiny Clues, where he was the top performer in the UK market. He then went on to Yieldify, where he was the top EMEA rep in 2018 and eventually went to lead on their EMEA sales team. He later went on to our very good friends over at Outreach, where he would have competed directly against Jack and I. And he's now founded a startup called Joint Flows, which aims to help sales and revenue teams to forecast a lot more accurately. Outside of that, he's an ex-champion French gymnast. So I'm sure he took a lot from what he learned in that sport, the resilience about being a gymnast into sales. And he's going to be speaking to us today about a deal that he sold at Tiny Clues. Thanks for coming on, Mick. Thank you, guys. Nice to meet you. Likewise, Mick. Mick, what's your take on that introduction? Have you got a... Goosebumps. You got a version of that. I've got my shirt on, but yeah, massive goosebumps. Now it's good doing a lot of sports, obviously, and then transitioning to a, into the sales world. It felt like it was all there to start with. You know, a lot of similarities, a lot of, of things that could apply on, on, on either side. So the competitive mindset, chasing targets, having to, to perform when, when it's required, working on strengths, weaknesses, the stress that goes with it, the adrenaline. That goes with it as well. So no, I'm really happy where I am, and uh, and hopefully we can help salespeople with joint flows as well. Be a, be a little bit less stressed. What is the adrenaline rush like of winning a competition in gymnastics versus to closing a big deal? I think the the rush happens between the end of the of the run and when you know where you're ranked. I think once you once you've landed, you kind of know whether you did well or not. But that's 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 that, that five seconds, just be just just after the end of the run when where you kind of stop it and be like, wow, all right. I say, A, I've survived, which is which is always a plus. And and B, I think I've I've landed it quite perfectly. So that should take me somewhere. And then the announcement of of where your rank is is yeah, cherry on the cake. And I guess so. Let's use that as a segue here. Then we won't work backwards from the deal. We'll kick it off from the start. But you tell us you're going to tell us a deal that gave you PTSD previously. Not to ruin the story, but tell us. Are you able to give us a bit of an overview of where this deal? I guess not. When you first knew there was a deal to be had, this deal started. We've got an opportunity here. Can you tell yeah. us about that. Yeah. So it was back in the day. So I was I was a little bit younger, and a lot of the events were. We're still running, so like trade events, face-to-face -face networking events. And 
we were selling into tier one accounts, retail. So you knew like you had the top 500 and then we were selling into really the top 25, top 50. So we had a list of, of companies to go after. And then these guys were attending one of those matchmaking events. So it was all about trying to build a strategy and then see what message we could we could push forward, which would be like, okay, yeah, we need to have we need to have that initial meeting. But it was never cold because we were constantly obviously nurturing with email and, and, and doing all these multi-touch point email campaigns. At the time LinkedIn was a little bit less imposing. So it was very much about picking up the phone or sending emails. When we first got in touch with them, we knew we had a 15 minutes, 20 minutes time slot and we needed to impress and we needed to have it spot on. So what we decided to do was to do our executive alignment right at the start. <laughs> so basically bring the founder on the initial matchmaking call and lead from here, lead from there with obviously a, a checklist of things we needed to needed to achieve. And and I think we did a good job because we got we got a meeting straight away with with the decision makers. What what we didn't realize was how complicated it would be to then go to group level. So that that group was is a massive group which is made of eight rounds and eight rounds with individual PLs. But then, but then we realized that actually that none of this was true. So to make a decision at brand level needed, needed the sign off by the chairman of the company who's sir, whatever, whatever, but I, a really high level guy. And yeah, that took, that took us a year, a year and a half to get there. But you said you brought in your founder at the start. Who did you, how high up the organization did you go with that message? Well, all the way to the top. From the start? Oh, no, no. At, at the start, that message landed us with the CRM. We were selling into marketing team CRM with the head of CRM at one brand. But then we escalated, basically. Then we, we essentially pulled the, the decision out of our exec out to, to be able to reuse that, that card again. And then we, we keep, kept on building, multi-threading and... and do all these things that increase momentum. What what would I would be really interested to find out, Mick, is when you get that initial meeting with such a large brand with so many stakeholders, how do you visually map out the stakeholders that you think you need to engage? We we did so we made assumptions to start with based on similar deals we closed, but because we were we were first in the region. So I was the first man on the ground for that specific company. And we, we realized that the sales process that we had in the UK was fairly different than the sales process we had in the headquarters. I don't know if you can hear me, guys, but the, the connection is a little bit weak. So it was very assumption-based based on the, the typical org charts that we would see in France. And... That was the first assumption. Then there was a, a LinkedIn map out. So, okay, well, usually we deal with CRM, CRM director, head of marketing, CMOs, C-level. And then if it's under an umbrella, then we do the exact same path again at headquarter level, if that, if that makes sense. And it, it was fairly close to, to the truth, but a lot of the sales process was about leveraging our, our initial champion 
and essentially doing org chart mapping, like physical org chart mapping. So I would I would pull out a spreadsheet and then so tell me who's reporting into who who's got budget access, who doesn't, who's got a technical sign off to make, who doesn't, who's got decision power, who's got influence on that. And then one way at the top at the brand, like how do we do this multiple times so that we get an army of champions essentially pitching at group level? But it took, yeah, it took us. And because it's so there's so many moving parts, none of this is is true as in the data that you get forever true because people they move on, they change, they get promoted. So you have to do that consistently throughout the sales process. And this is somewhere where a lot of sales reps trip up is when they do have an idea of where the power lies or where budget lies or and they've got a contact that they've got at the business. One of the hardest things is then getting more contacts at the business about burning your bridges, effectively just like ruining the relationship you've got at the moment. How did you manage that in this instance with so many moving parts? We, I think there's twofold. The first one is you have to have to have, you have to have a champion which is which is happy to be kind of not bypassed but but enabling you to to move the conversation over, and this person has to accept that his level of power or her level of power and influence stops at a certain level, and I, and I get where things get complicated in sales is twofold really. You get comfortable with the data you've got, the information you've got, and then you start exploring and get more data. And you, oh, I've got a really good champion, and this person is telling me everything I need to know. But do they? <laughs> you know, and that's the role of the manager, and that's the role of 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 your sales of your sales team to kind of challenge your status quo. And the second is, how do I actually get this person to to hand me over to other decision makers without? without calling this person obsolete, you know? And you have to work on both. So we we use this person to, to move up vertically. So within that brand and then within the group, and then we did the exact same action into other brands. What we didn't know at the time was that there was gonna be a full reorg <laughs> happening, happening within, Halfway through the halfway through the sales process, basically, and meaning that from eight individual brands fitting into that one that one group, you only had four to deal with. So they merged. They, they did like pairs, basically of brands with with like similarities. But it means that all the org chart was wrong. The decisions have changed. They didn't know who was responsible for what anymore. And had we been at at brand level, then I think the deal would have would have would have been lost. We we had a foot in the door at group level, which saved the deal. I think at, at that time. And have you got anything that you do tactically to help move through that? Like anything like this is an idea of a way that I can get this champion to feel comfortable with me bypassing them. This is an idea of a way that I can get past them about them feeling obsolete, because that's something that is takes a little bit of emotional intelligence, but is critical to not burn your bridge, but also keep moving forward. Yeah, I think a lot happens during the discovery, during the discovery call. I don't, I don't like to call it a call because I think discovery happens throughout. But whenever you've got a discovery moment, I think it's really important to understand who's responsible for which metric. 
and whether they're solely responsible for that metric or not. And the word solely responsible for, I think, is really important because there's going to be a person who's, who's solely responsible for the execution of one metric. And the higher you go, the more you're like, yeah, that's my job to look after conversion. Yeah, that's my job. And then obviously they, they, they distribute the, 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 the tasks and the responsibilities, but it feeds into one spot, right? So marketing would be responsible for marketing metrics, whatever. And during the discovery question, I think the emotional intelligence has to bridge with what's a little bit more logical. And that's where essentially the tipping point is, is, is being able to identify that and to agree on, yeah, actually this is where my responsibilities start and become someone else, someone else responsibility or, or like it fits into someone else's metric. That was so beautiful. And, and to add to that, I think I'm going to say from selling into enterprise, you know, the metrics and who's responsible for like, I'm sure Jack knows because he sells into enterprise. I've only been an SDR into that. But normally you're just trying to tag that into a company objective that hopefully is actually publicly available via some annual report. Did you have that as part of this process? We did, but it felt like, because we were quite low down to start with, it felt like none of this was as important as, as it should have been, if that makes sense. And where we where we started to understand was when we were where we were getting started at group level, basically because what you want metrics are fine and, and I think you need to have them, but if they're not linked to a personal consequence, and if this is not put on a timeline, then this becomes it becomes a, a dead opportunity. So for any metric, you have to understand. What happens if this doesn't get delivered and when this needs to be delivered by at the latest? That gives you a compelling event. That gives you that gives you your business case. And often I find that I do it as well. I, I get a little bit comfortable understanding the metric and be like, well, why wouldn't they do it? <laughs> you know, like, I've got a really strong business case here, but actually what you're missing out is, is your compelling event. And what happens if you don't actually get to that metric, which is the personal consequence? And that emotional intelligence to get the personal consequence out of people, I think is, is what differentiates extremely good salespeople versus, versus the rest. Yeah, Jack and I had a conversation about this recently. It's like you can work out what the metric is. You can work out a compelling event. You can tie it to some difficult pain, blah, 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 blah. And you can also get an idea of somebody's personal win or personal loss the issue that's downstream from them not doing this from a personal perspective but you've got to be really subtle and you've got to be really nuanced of your language to be able to relay that back to them in a way that doesn't feel as though it's like uncomfortable or awkward leverage and saying something like solely are you solely responsible for this metric are you solely responsible for this being delivered on time is a really smart way of saying are you going to introduce me to the other people who care about this (laughs) Or are we just going to be in an echo chamber? I think that's a really smart way of using like a really nuanced, subtle word that gets somebody to say, no, it's not just me, actually. It's that person down the corridor. Let me go and get them. They need to be involved in the next conversation, which is really critical when you're dealing with four brands under one company heading that are all managing their own P&Ls. It's like, of course, you're not solely responsible for this. So shall we have a meeting with the other people? And that's kind of hard. 
So impressive, obviously impressive, but you managed to gather all these people. Did you manage to like herd the cats and bring them all together next or did they come to you? No, so we did a group. So we did a, a push tender as opposed to a pull. So like the pull tender, they put the tender out and you apply to it. And then there's a push tender, which is you make the tender out for them and then you present it back. So so we did that. We essentially gathered all the information together, shape, shape, shaped it nicely. And then the, the actual sales process started. So that six months that took us to actually start the sales process was, was where I think we consistently set the wrong expectations internally because I don't think we knew, but there's always a push for forecasting. There's always a push for delivering. And sometimes you kind of have to do it whether it makes sense or not. So this, this deal, look, it looked fine, but we didn't want to, we don't want to close one brand when we could have eight. And that's the decision to make, right? Is do you maximize and increase your risks before getting the first signature? Or do you choose to have that safer approach where you take one brand, you prove your value, then you move on to the next one and you review, and then you do that over time basically to increase your, your stake. But we chose, we chose the former. Pressure on. Let's go. Yeah. You said this deal gave you like PTSD, as most big deals probably do, and most sales reps would be lying in case they didn't. When you decided internally that you were going to go for, you know, we, we, we were going to try and sign all eight brands or we're trying to align to the objectives of signing all eight brands, where did you think along that sort of period you, you, you'd lost the deal? I think every week for a year, I'd, I'd, I lost the deal, like literally every week for a year. On Friday, I was like, oh, do I even forecast this? Do I put it close? Do I, do I close Losset and then keep it under the radar and work it until it's, it's becoming a little bit more mature? But because it was such a, a big piece of work, like you, I can't, you can't hide it because that's what you spend your time on. And then you all of a sudden, you've got 50% less pipe. And they're going to be like, well, what are you actually doing all day? So, so we kept it on, but... Every week, we had a really good relationship with, with our champions there. And it was like WhatsApp terms from the very beginning was text, text terms at the time, but very much in the pocket physically. And then it was really about navigating that, that buying process together with them. And I think a lot of the focus is really on, okay, we've got your sales process, but really you're trying to map that against an existing buying process. And if you're in an innovative space, there's often no buying process in place. That's often the first time that these, these people will ever buy these kind of technologies. So, so we didn't know what to go through. It was not a standard CRM software. You know, it was very advanced. And I mean, the platform was incredible. The results were great. But there was no path to follow. So we needed to create it. And we needed to maintain it. And then we needed to recycle some of the pieces so that we could fit more brands into, into a, single, a single path, basically. So, yeah, the, the, the deal was lost every week, every other week for, for six months. And then, and then you get a little bit of a rush because it's back on the, on the, on the, on the radar. And then you've made a leap forward and then, and then back to, to, to the drawing board again. That's interesting. And, and you seemed to me to focus on decision process 
being the main challenge that you really faced and them not knowing how to buy software, really. How did you manage that? We got a lot of guidance and we made sure that during the FaceTime we had with stakeholders to always have a next step in the diary. And to so there was there are different dimensions. There's C-level kind of decision makers and they don't want to have a, a recurring status update schedule because they've got other things to do. These guys were like, you know, billion pound worth. So like you're a little part of their day. And then for you it's everything, but really they've got they've got a lot of things going on. But anyone a little bit more operational, we were on weekly, a weekly cadence basically of meeting of, okay, well, we're gonna meet for 15 minutes unofficially or a little bit less formal and then cover what we've learned this week, what, what progress we've made. And then we would have our, you know, milestone meetings basically to, uh, to, to go and discover new processes we had to go through. And this is interesting for me because we, uh, we get grilled on this internally. Like, what are your next steps? Have you got a closing plan in place? And it often feels like you're kind of making it up on the fly because you have to, because it's a dynamic scenario and there's so many different people involved in it from their side. But And sales management tends to think that, no, there's a process in place and I just need to hear it. Now that you're on the other side of the table, me and Jack are still reps, although you still sell, you know, like you're in sales management for the most part. Do you still agree with that? With the necessity to have a next step? Yeah. No, no, no. The 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 idea that this there is a process that you should be following, or do you, are you far more on the rep side now? Still, that you know this can be made up on the fly. Look, I've built a technology around it, so I'm, I'm very much on the rep side. I think it has to be flexible enough, and I think you have to be able to drag in whatever workflow you have to facilitate the buying process, uh, and. When when a when a when an organization grows, I think you get comfortable with hey look we've got a repeatable a repeatable sales process and everybody has to fit in it, and if they are not fitting within our sales process, then the opportunity is not great. But I think your sales process should be a compass to achieving specific milestones in a specific order or in a specific order ish, and then you should be able to have the creativity, the needed creativity to actually get that aligning with a buying process. If you, all you're doing is forcing your sales process, then most people won't fall within it. You know, If all you're doing is trying to map your requirements with a buying process, then it becomes way more about, about them versus, versus you. I'm starting to see how you ended up where you ended up. <laughs> I love the idea of the buying compass. Yeah, me too. It's like a, there's, there's a map and there's a key and there's a compass, but really like they're, not, they're all different parts to the thing and also there's instinct and intuition that comes into play with this okay so i guess this leads us into this part where 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 did you where did you recognize that there was some blood in the water and you know there was a deal to be done and that you were potentially going to win it and you and you you were going to drive things forward aggressively we knew from the start that the, the problem they had was a problem we solve now there's so many ways to actually solve a problem right whether it's crm whether it's like marketing technology you've got 
thousands of oceans. If you look at the, uh, the competitive landscape, that gives you an understanding of, of the scale. It's really about the, the credibility of your business case. And, and I think where we started to be it started to become real was when we were doing rollout plans. And that, that become from having a problem to, okay, this is the concept that we're going to use to achieve the problem to this is the solution we're going to roll out. I think these three levels of, of moving from a concept to a reality is extremely key at a certain point of the deal to actually push the deal through. And sometimes, Sometimes it doesn't happen, and I think that's when deals are hard to actually push through. Is they don't actually they haven't moved from emotional buy to 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 logical buy, and and because that transition has been made hasn't been made. Sorry, the risk is still very high. Is oh, is this gonna work? Is this not gonna work? Versus, well, I'm telling you this is gonna work. So how much we think this is gonna make, and this is how we are going to roll it out. And is this solution? doable for you like do you commit with me to actually deliver it that is just about executing so when we put that plan together that's when we knew okay this this thing has legs and now we're just gonna roll it out well you speak in the same way i feel think about sales you speak in very process orientated like sections like you compartmentalize everything a lot do you think that that's lent you to be able to close bigger deals or be able to be more like your skill set is more favorable to close bigger deals as opposed to perhaps more smaller tactical deals. And do you think that helped in this scenario? Yeah, I think people need this, the, the peace of mind that you you know what is required to yeah. get the job done. And and when you buy a new piece of tech and the investment is, is significant, you, you don't know if it's, this is going to deliver back to personal consequences. Is okay, well, I need to solve that, but are you the right the right partner to do it because i'm going to put as a buyer that's the right that's my one card uh, my my one card or you're my main card let's not say one card you're my main card and if this main can't fail and my credibility fails but i miss my target which then gets me to my personal consequence basically much faster than than you should have so you have to you have to bridge that gap and you have to to materialize it and i think the to answer the question yes i think I'm very, I don't know, like, to me, it's a map or a puzzle. And you just, you just place those, those, those pieces together. And if one is missing, you just don't have it. You just don't have the puzzle done, basically. But what I think is different is there's deal management and there's sales methodology. And then if you cross both worlds, you've got, you've got forecasting, right? Do you manage to deal well? And are you using the methodology to qualify where you're currently sitting within the deal? And then that enables you to forecast. And I think deal management is 80% of the forecasting. 20% is deal methodology, sales methodology. Do you have the right criteria? Do you ask the right question? But you can sell without sales methodology. Or you can sell with everyone in your team having a different sales methodology. Right? It happens all the time. You can't sell without deal management. Like if you can't manage the deal, or the pieces of the deal, then you just can't sell. The deal doesn't happen. And I think what I really quickly understood was if you're if you're good at managing that, then often things will happen. And they will happen quicker than 
if you don't have it to start with, but you've got a good sales methodology instead. Wow. Wow. <laughs> have you said that before? The first time. <laughs> to really sell deal management more. I know, yeah. It's, it's so important because if you think about it in little pieces put together, then it doesn't matter when and how they happen, right? The order is irrelevant because you know every time that this piece leads to this type of workflows and they can insert it, they can be inserted, right? And that links to these other pieces. If you look at it from a from a self from a from a self-methodology viewpoint, it's really hard to do because it's either you're either following the methodology or you're not. And the moment you're not following the, the minute you're not following the methodology, it's red flags everywhere because you're thinking about it as a methodology. But it's not. Different little pieces put in different little orders that leads to the same person. We just have to know how they break together. Yeah, my analogy is almost identical. You know, you've pieces on the puzzle puzzle are now chess pieces that you have, like in your artillery. And your job is to not use every single one of them, but it's to know when to use the right piece at the right time. And the great, great salespeople do that extremely efficiently. And they might be used three chess pieces to get to the economic buyer that they know eventually gets the decision done. You said at the beginning of the piece, just on that, that eventually like <laughs> the chairman was involved. Was that your ultimate economic buyer? Was that like an, who was that person? Did yeah. you have to sell to them? Yeah, I had to sell to them, but I could not sell directly to them. No one could. So there was, I went to the office, like we, we spent, days there and the the office play is is super powerful like hey i'm around can i drop in in into their world because you can see like there's a lot of things you learn just by reading but whiteboards as you walk through the door you know and and, and the alleys and and you get the you get the feeling of how well an an, an organization is is organized how how well it's built or how messy how messy they are so we spent we spent days there, if not weeks, meeting up, and then and then there were a lot of things going on there because it was huge. But there was a massive, there was a, it was not a gatekeeper, it was like a fortress basically around that final decision maker. And what I didn't realize, what I overlooked was I thought that these people were, that this 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 organization was wealthy enough enough to sign these these things off without you know the ultimate person to sign off and actually the 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 further we were getting into the deals over time the more this company was getting into financial troubles down to the point where the chairman of the company the ultimate decision and the only decision maker was to sign off expenses like meals drinks everything over a hundred pounds. <laughs> so, so, so that's when I realized that, okay, this was going to take a while. And the, the, the business case better be strong before we actually presented it. And we got dragged into a, we got tried, dragged into a proof of concept, which was a face-to-face -face proof of concept versus our closest competitor. And I think that's where we won the deal. Like we just we just buried buried the competitor down before and before the, the the proof of concept even started because 
we had a really strong methodology. It was, it was, it was scientific work. Like there was no doubt about the outcome, and and they didn't. They just didn't. They they left it. They left it uncovered. Just like yeah, we'll do better than them. But we knew exactly what we needed to do, and then we just we just rolled it out. Assuming you had a big team of people working with you on this still. Yeah, it's always. I was the orchestrator, but I I, I didn't have any. Well, I I had a little bit, but I'm not a data. I'm not a data scientist. You know the way they were speaking and all of that. And, and I think that's probably one of the. What I like the most about sales tech is what you're selling is is what you're using. And you know, the, the benefit you get from what you're selling is what you can then sell. And unfortunately, a lot of salespeople don't sell what they've got experience in. You know, like if you sell into Martech and you're in, in a technology company, then you may never have been a CMO of a company or or whatever. So it's really hard to actually relate to what's actually happening. And, and the thing what is really important to do when you're on board, new salespeople, I don't know if it's relevant for this podcast or not, is to get them a little bit of a taste of, you know, this is what people like this do and then what they struggle with before you actually throw them on the field. I'm assuming this is another reason why you are where you are now is because bringing all those people together on your side, bringing all those people together on the other side, getting all the information relevant information matched up, paired up, shared in one central location. I think like unifying all that is probably was an inspiration to bring you into the position you, you are today. But did you, once you've now got to the point where you've recognized who the economic buyer is, you've got your team on your side, you've got all the right relevant people on the other side. You talk us through, you know, you mentioned PTSD earlier, but can you also talk us through like Mick outside of sales, outside of the company, how are you now living like with the stress and pressure of this big thing? Because you've bitten off the whole deal as well. You haven't just taken the small deal and the first signature to land and expand. But how do you cope with that? So I, I, that's going to sound cheesy, right? But I think there's a lot of, of focus on trying to find the right mentor and trying to, to find people in your industry that can help. And I think to me, the relationship you have to nurture, nurture the most is, is the relationship with the person you share your life with. At the end of the day, I come home and this person, Hannah, either I'm like galvanized and this is great or I'm broken. <laughs> and the deal has fallen through and, you know, Jack, we were speaking about how many times the deal died throughout the process. And, and if you don't have a very healthy relationship with this person, where you, you go back to, to a place, safe place, basically, with no pressure, no expectation, or something you, can, you can't manage, then the pressure is always on. So the way I manage that is I'm trying to have the best relationship with, with my partner, and obviously my kids now, but I also have something for the body, which is like do something physical that helps you steam off a bit. So for me, it's Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. And essentially, it's, it's a mix of both. It's, okay, speaking it through with, with the person you trust internally or internally, sorry, at home, and then, and then just go burn that energy and that, that anger <laughs> on, on whatever physical activity you like to do. Yeah, I think that's great advice. No big deal podcast, but at home with your partner. 
the way we're building, I, I can tell you, Hannah knows more about joint influence than anyone in, in, in the company. Like she's seen it through. And if she was on, she was not completely, if I didn't have a good relationship or if, if I felt like there was a little bit of competition, unhealthy competition, then that would be that would be difficult because I would carry I would carry that with me all the time. Oh, interesting. Let's yeah, get get let's get deep here for a second. Now, a, fr- a friend of a friend of mine is single. He's in sales and he's been single for a long time. And we had this conversation recently. He's he's stuck at a bit of a point, and he said like, I just I can't get past this next stage of my career. And I was like, you know what, mate, you need a missus. Like, you need another half. Like, you need somebody you come home to. It's like you're basically your confidant who hears it all out and tells you like, right, relax. Like don't reply to that email until tomorrow. Like, or go back to them now and tell them how you really feel and get it out in the air. Whereas if you're on your own, you don't have that. And that does, I don't know, maybe, maybe it's also the touch of a woman far more emotionally intelligent than we are. It probably is help. Thanks a lot for joining us, Mick. That was really valuable. And I'm sure our listeners will feel the same. Awesome. I appreciate it, Mick.